Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to UC San Diego. Welcome to Eleanor Roosevelt College. Welcome to this, the third lecture in the series, The Making of the Modern World, To Be Human. My name is Alan Houston. I'm the provost of Eleanor Roosevelt College, and I'm delighted to see each and every one of you here tonight. This curriculum, The Making of the Modern World, that we're sharing with you this evening, a part of which we share tonight, this curriculum is a reflection of that commitment to global citizenship. The purpose of the Making a Modern World is to study how we came to be this multinational, multilinguistic, multicultural world that we all are a part of from the earliest of times. Those of you who were here two weeks ago had a chance to learn about the early evolution of humans and the food supply up through the 21st century, which will be the subject of our final talk. The series, like the lectures, uh, like the courses that it's a part of, the making of the modern world is intended to capture from different perspectives the ideals and purposes and concepts and categories that make the modern world so engaging and important and complex. Our goal is to share with you some of the intellectual treasures of the making of the modern world and some of the teaching treasures. The lecture series is intended to make these Share, to share these with you, it wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't had the support and assistance from units across campus, the Chancellor's Associates, the Alumni Association, uh, Parent and Family Giving. Each of these organizations on campus has helped to bring together and make possible this extraordinary gathering of friends. The series was organized by Steve Cassidy and me. Steve is a professor of Slavic and Comparative Literature. He's also a, an Associate Dean of Graduate Studies. For a period of six years, from 2001 to 2007, Steve was the director of the Making of the Modern World. Tonight, he is our moderator, Steve Cassidy. Thank you, Alan. And once again, it's just terrific to see this hall packed with people. Last week, with Professor William Propp, We heard about the Neolithic Revolution, the changeover from polytheism to monotheism, and the rather ambiguous character that being human took on with those tumultuous changes. Professor Propp talked about a deity, one of whose names is grammatically plural, but existentially singular, or maybe plural, despite being monotheistic. He spoke about Adam, the first man, who was both like and unlike God or the gods. He spoke about the distinctive features of being human that are presented as new in the scriptures because we watch them as they're being either invented or created. For example, how human beings cover up in many modern cultures. It's a terrific pleasure to introduce to you this evening Dr. Matthew T. Herbst. He is the faculty director of the Making of the Modern World program, a position that he has held since 2007. He got his undergraduate degree in history Greek and Latin from Binghamton University in New York, his MA and PhD degrees from the University of Michigan, where he studied Byzantium, ancient Rome, and the medieval West and Near East. Academic interests, Constantinople slash Istanbul. He has studied the Eremitical tradition, that means the tradition of hermits in Christianity, the spirituality of desire. If any of you had the pleasure of hearing him last Sunday, you'll know about that. And the life and literature of the Indiana-born historian, novelist, and Methodist minister, Edward Eggleston. He gives courses on pre-modern world history. That would be MMW 11, 12, and 13, and a number of religious topics, including the history of early Christianity mystical tradition in world religions. 
He's one of the very finest instructors we have at this entire university. And Eleanor Roosevelt College, the students gave him the Outstanding Faculty Award, justly deserved in 2009. He invented the summer study abroad programs. So he was in Paris in 2008, Istanbul from 2009 to 2012. And actually, now that I think about it, I think we were doing you a favor with that, not the other way around, right? (laughs) Having to spend the summer in Paris in 2008. Matthew was also just a wonderful, to be human, Matthew was a wonderful human being. And I want to mention one brief thing from his past. Two brief things. He's from New York and has not entirely lost his accent. That's one good thing. Better than that. (laughs) Better than that. Um, Back in his Michigan days in Ann Arbor, he assumed the position of director of education at the First United Methodist Church in Howell, Michigan. I don't know whether that name has any resonance for anybody but Midwesterners in the audience, but Howell, Michigan, though I'm sure it has a stable population of perfectly wonderful people, also was a hotbed of white supremacist activity over a number of decades. And Dr. Herbst worked to promote tolerance and diversity in an extremely poisonous climate And he was, not surprisingly to me, very, very successful. So it is a great pleasure to introduce to you tonight a brilliant teacher, scholar, wonderful human being who will be speaking on the topic desire, temptation, and spiritual struggle, historical Christian perspectives on being human. Please welcome to the podium Dr. Matthew Herbst. Thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you, students and friends of UCSD and Eleanor Roosevelt College. Thank you, staff and faculty of UCSD, ERC, and MMW, with whom I work every day. Thank you all, and welcome. I must also thank Professor Cassidy, my faculty mentor, sent to me by the Associate Vice Chancellor of Undergraduate Education to guide me through the circles of academic hell to that light ahead my prospective tenure next year. (laughs) And, And along with Professor Cassidy, I thank Eleanor Roosevelt College Provost Alan Houston for his continued support and for inviting me to be a part of this wonderfully exciting lecture series. And I thank both of them for believing that I could somehow do justice to 2,000 years of Christian perspectives on the human experience in 45 minutes. (laughs) Well, such is the challenge before us, so let's get started. Here, allow me to play doctor. And I'm not talking about the PhD kind, I mean the real kind. Let me offer a diagnosis. We humans are infected. And this infection links all humanity across time and space. And theological epidemiologists trace the source of this infection back to something we ate. And so here we see tonight's topic connects with the previous lecture given by my dear colleague, Professor Bill Propp, who turned our attention back to the ostensible progenitors of humanity, Adam and Eve. Our four parents in paradise, in fellowship with God, who in disobedience ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and bad, the forbidden fruit. They disobeyed and they ate. And this act, this rejection of God's word, this original sin, 
is the source of the infection. And from this moment here, the disease became manifest in the world. And as descendants of Adam and Eve, we suffer still. The first man, in complicity with the first woman, brought sin into the world, and death, pain, violence, injustice, stress, struggle are all consequences. This is our lot as humans. So now let me turn to the Christian scriptures, the New Testament, specifically to the letters of Paul in the first century. And and I should also point out that Paul's voice is the oldest voice that we have in Christianity. We often think, uh, when we try to understand Christianity, students often think, oh, you'd start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That will give you the earliest portrait of Jesus. In fact, that's not true at all. The earliest image we have of Jesus is the voice of Paul. It is in the letters of Paul, which predate the gospel. So I turn to Paul, his letter to the Romans, written right right in the 50s, kind of mid-first century. He says, Romans 5, 12, Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Why? Adam chose to gratify his physical pleasure. The fruit looked so good. Against sound judgment. So here we see a tension. A tension between the body's desire for pleasure and something else. Something of great concern for Christians. The soul. And the desire of the soul to obey God. Here we have these two poles. And I have to say, in this lecture, I will be using these terms, soul and spirit, essentially interchangeably. Suffice it to say, I am referring to the non-physical part of ourselves. That's what I mean by soul or spirit. Body and soul often seem at odds. Returning to the words of Paul... As witness in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 7, Paul says this. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. This seems such a universal truth, one we can readily identify with from our own experience. How often do we commit ourselves to a diet, an exercise plan, a decision to stop eating chips after 6 p.m. or watching TV, whatever the resolution we make, and yet in an instant we break. We're back at it. How is it that our body, which craves physical pleasure and comfort, and our spirit, which seeks to rein in the body, seem so at odds? What the body wants, it sets the will to get. Desire drives the will to please the body, often leading to financial or personal disaster. Just ask Tiger Woods. (laughs) But why is this so? Back to those letters of Paul, writing this time to the Galatians. So again, about mid-first century. Paul says, Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful natures. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. So here we have identified the problem, but there is also a hint to the solution, for we are both body 
and spirit. But these are out of sorts. We need a theological chiropractic adjustment to realign body and soul. But how? The answer for Christians, and I should tell you, this is the answer to virtually every problem posed in a Christian discussion, is Jesus. You've likely heard of the WWJD phenomenon. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus eat? What would he drive? Where would he do his banking? What websites would Jesus look at or not look at? Would Jesus shop at Walmart? Is he really a Denver Broncos fan? Would he listen to Lady Gaga? Because if Jesus would do these things, then I can do. What would Jesus do? This reflects how Christians look to Jesus as their model. Because in Jesus, God became human to restore humanity. In Jesus, Christians see God as a human being. As the universal human in whom all humanity is represented. The Son of God became a man to die for the sins of all humanity, said Athanasius of Alexandria, the great 4th century bishop in his On the Incarnation. To correct original sin and its consequences, God became man. To correct the world that Adam and Eve messed up. All human history for Christians leads up to the birth of Jesus. And all events since that time look back to the birth of Jesus. This incarnation of God is so central to Christian understanding of the world that this event became the pivot in cosmic chronology by dividing time into the part before Jesus and the part since. And students sometimes get you know, confused about this because they, there's no year zero. They struggle with that. They say, well, when was, let's pretend Jesus was born January 1 of the year 1. What, what was the year? December 31st. You know, it's, it's not zero. It's 1 B.C. Anyway, stuff we have to go over. Now, you all know that. But. Christians believe that Jesus lived a perfect and sinless human life, which sets the bar really, really high, okay, (laughs) for the rest of us. As the great fourth century church father, Athanasius again, wrote, God became man so that man might become God. This salvation and restoration is in the end both in body and in soul. The whole person is saved. Christians believe that faith in Jesus is the ticket to escape from death and damnation. And just as Jesus' body and spirit resurrected from the dead, so will our complete person, body and soul. Okay, let's review. What? The human condition is diseased. And it leads to disorientation and really, really bad decisions. Some are very easy to see. Hitler, Pol Pot, reality TV shows like Jersey Shore. (laughs) It's clear. So one, the human condition is diseased. Two, God became Jesus to bring a cure. Now this thus far is relatively uncontroversial in early Christianity. But controversy quickly emerged over how to explain Jesus. Now it gets harder. You see, there were Christians at the time in the first centuries who believed that matter 
was evil and spirit good. Therefore, the God who created the world, the God that created bodies, is not the true high God. Humans are not the integrations of body and soul. We are souls imprisoned in evil matter by a diabolical fiend, and Jesus was sent by the true God to get us out. They believe that matter and spirit were two intrinsically separate and ontologically distinct natures, body and soul, one evil, one good. And if you look back at the passages that I read by Paul, you could see Paul could also be interpreted in this light. I'm not saying he meant it this way, but one could see how this interpretation could come out of that. With this line of thinking then, Jesus, being perfectly good, could not really have had a physical body. So he must have only appeared to have a physical body. He appeared so, so we would understand him, so he can guide us out. Hence, these ideas were called docetic. Docetic or uh, docetic in Greek, dokein means to seem, to appear. So Jesus appeared to have a body, but really he didn't. It was an illusory physical body. Jesus was a spiritual being, not a physical one. According to this view, we see. These ideas were vehemently attacked by those that believed Jesus had a physical body that we have physical bodies and souls, and they are both created by God. To make the case that Jesus was truly human, that he truly had a body like we do, we had to show, or Christians at the time had to show, that God created the world, created Adam and Eve, and said, Jesus, one way to do this is to take the Hebrew Scriptures and bind them with the Christian scriptures into a single book from creation to Jesus. Emergence of the Bible. Integrating Hebrew scriptures with the Greek scriptures together. But I want to focus on some other dramatic ways of making the case for Jesus' humanity. And by doing so, for what it means to be human. I'll start with suffering. Suffering in the body becomes a path to God. You see, Jesus suffered in the body. He had a body and he suffered and he endured. So human suffering becomes a theological argument and a connection. Those that did not believe that Jesus had a real body would be less interested in enduring suffering and martyrdom. Give the example of Ignatius of Antioch. He was a bishop in Syria at the beginning of the second century. Ignatius was arrested by the Roman authorities. He was a Roman citizen, so he was sent to Rome, where he will be killed, as you see in the image on the screen. Killed in the arena. On his way... As the guards are moving him through the empire, he writes letters to Christian communities in Anatolia. We have those letters. And he makes the case for the physical body of Jesus and for his own suffering and how they are connected. I quote from his letter to the church of Smyrna. If what our Lord did is a sham, so is my being in chains. Why then have I given myself up completely to death, fire, sword, and wild beasts? For the simple reason that near the sword means near God. Jesus suffered, and I will suffer for him. And in that suffering, I will be linked to Jesus. I will be a witness to the physical reality of Jesus' existence. I will be a martyr. And martyr in Greek means witness. He's a witness to. So you see the image on the screen in the arena, Ignatius being gobbled up by lions. And as he is gobbled up, as he becomes food for the lions, he in fact is food for the church. Because the church is growing out of the blood 
of such martyrs. The Christian gives witness to the presence of Christ in their lives and thus the proper alignment of body and soul by their willingness to undergo trial, according to this view. And less dramatically, by their practice of virtues such as chastity, sobriety, civil harmony, fortitude, charity, and most important of all, martyrdom. Historical Christianity saw conduct as evidence of proper body-soul alignment. Christians were expected to live according to Jesus and treat others accordingly. As a 4th century churchman wrote, After God, we must count everyone as God himself. To do this meant to express concern for others' well-being, caring for the sick, visiting prisoners, and feeding the poor. Feeding, taking care of bodies. And this returns to Jesus. How do we make the case for the physical reality of Jesus? Well, Christians eat Jesus, the Eucharist. If we look at Christian worship, Adam and Eve messed up the world by eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and bad. And Jesus restores the world by offering himself as food. Christians eat Jesus in the Eucharist. This physical act of eating emphasizes the reality of the body, both ours and Jesus's. Now, last week, Professor Propp also talked about uh, the post-flood situation. So we have the flood, Noah saved everybody, we have the ark, and then the waters uh, subside, and then Noah and family and animals get off the ark. Talked about that last week. And it's a pretty traumatic event. You can imagine the stress that Noah endured having to save the whole world. Well, it's pressure. And, and so when he, when he gets out, and remember the, the, one of the first things they do, they have to start tilling the soil. Got to plant the grapes so we can ferment the grapes so that we can drink the wine so we can get really drunk. And so we saw alcohol was offered as an antidote to the human condition last week. And we see that here as well. Christians eat Jesus' body and they drink his blood as wine. These are physical acts. The body and eating are good. They affirm creation. Now another way to make the case for Jesus' physical reality is to look at his birth. Jesus was physically born. A real birth, not an apparent birth. He had a physical mom. So Mary had to be emphasized as playing a critical role. Now, if you think of it from Mary's perspective, it would have been much, much easier had Jesus not had a real body. <laughs> that would have made for one quick birthing process. But alas, he did. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was man and God. She was the Theotokos. She was the God-bearer, the mother of God, who fully participated in the process of delivering Jesus to the world. Orthodox theologians call this synergy, that Mary assented. She accepted this. She was told and she accepted synergy. Now, it's important, it's so important that Mary assents, she accepts this task. If she doesn't, if she says, no, God, I don't want this, and God forces this on her, this is some odd act of divine rape, right? and it does not happen. She accepts and she delivers Jesus into the world, saying in the Gospel of Luke, may it be as you have said, I accept. She becomes the mother of God. Now, if matter is good, 
Jesus had a body. We have bodies. Then the church had to come to grips with the fact that our bodies have parts that clearly connect to other people's bodies. Now, surgery could fix this. And there were more than a few Christians in the early centuries that took such steps. After all, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, and so forth. (laughs) Christian theologians struggled over this. Most famously, perhaps, is Augustine. Now, I should say here, Augustine is a a church father writing in North Africa. He's a North African Christian, a bishop in Hippo, city of Hippo, which is in North Africa. And he's writing in Latin. And his ideas would be profoundly important and influential in Western Christianity. Not in Eastern Christianity. Augustine wrote in Latin, The church fathers in the East wrote in Greek. Augustine struggled to understand Greek, and the church fathers didn't bother reading Latin. So the influence of Augustine moves west. There is no translation of any work of St. Augustine into Greek until the 14th century, almost a thousand years later. And there's Catholics are present, and that's what led to this translation. So, back to, back to where we are here. We have parts that fit into other people's parts. Uh, so what to do? Augustine. Let's look at his view. He's very uncomfortable with this. How to reconcile. We have a body. God created the body. Creation is good, but sex exists. And Augustine said that sex involved a certain amount of bestial movement and violent, lustful desire. And he says this is the result of the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. They didn't have this problem before. In fact, he taught... That in the garden, Adam and Eve had control over their flesh. That is, their spirit and their body were in sync. He taught that Adam and Eve, teens, spending a lot of free time together naked, did not have sex in the garden. Not even heavy petting. But, he admits, if they did have sex, they would have managed to do so without any unseemly passion. (laughs) And then they were expelled from paradise. Sin entered the world, as did apparently good sex. (laughs) But therein lies the problem for Augustine and for Christian theologians who had to affirm the goodness of sex in general because it comes from God. But they viewed every specific act of sex as stimulated by lust and therefore questionable. So the rule became, okay, just do it, but do it only in marriage and do it only to procreate. Marriage was affirmed as Christian though not the ideal. The ideal became celibacy. The model of Jesus and Paul and the Virgin Mary. That became, in historical Christianity, the ideal, celibacy. For those of us that aren't born with that gift, okay, we get married. But it is secondary. It is not the Christian ideal in historic Christianity. Just as Jesus became the new Adam to fix the mess 
of the first Adam. Mary then becomes the new Eve. Through the first Eve, the world was sent awry. Through the new Eve, the world is brought back into alignment. Because through the new Eve, through Mary, is delivered Jesus into the world. So to review, the Christian perspective then links suffering, marriage, and family. That's about right. That's And then we have the problem. If Jesus becomes the ideal for humans, after all, he was human. He lived a life faced with the challenges and the temptations that all people face. We need to live like him, according to this. How do I know if I am living the path of Jesus or following my own desires of the flesh? This problem increasingly began to occur to Christians, certainly by the fourth century. See, in the first few centuries, when Christianity was not the religion of power, was not the religion of economic success and prosperity, when Christianity was a minority religion which could get you killed, the masses didn't flock to church. When Christianity in the 4th century becomes the religion of political power, economic power, cultural dominance, the masses flock to Christianity. So at that point, when I'm faced with many people that seem not to be as zealous, how do I know if I am living according to Jesus? This question led to the emergence of a monastic movement of individuals that decided, I need to step away from society to assess whether I am pursuing Jesus or the fleshly desires. The monastic movement meant vigilance. The monastic movement meant renunciation. I will not indulge the flesh. I will live a celibate life. I will reduce the amount of food that I eat. I will be conscious of what I think, of what I say. And I always ask my students in some of the courses that I teach, when we talk about these issues, how often, when you're eating, you've ordered your meal at the restaurant, or you're eating it at home, how often do you push the plate away once you feel a certain satisfaction. I am full. I do not need to eat anymore. Right? Do we say, but there's a lot on your plate. No, I'm, I'm done. Right? No, of course not. We, 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 that's a sin. I've got to eat more. I've got to gobble up. So what we do is we're not even conscious when we've eaten just enough and we indulge. Now, from the monastic perspective, you are all gluttons. Right? Unless we're vigilant. Oh, we, we forget this vigilant. And that's why if you read the monastic literature, the devil comes to St. Anthony. The devil comes and pummels this man in Egypt. The devil doesn't come to us because he has us. He's not worried about us. He's worried about someone who's becoming that vigilant that he's getting it. He's on the right path. So we see the development of discipline. This is the other thing. Discipline regards the body, trying to get body and soul integrated by pursuing ascetic practices or disciplines. The monastic movement starts this in the 4th century, but it continues down to the present. For example, the purpose-driven life. This was a a sensation, this text. It's still a a best-selling text, and fundamentally, it's in the same tradition of helping Christians get right, helping Christians follow a certain practice in order to fulfill their Christianity. Okay. Let me wrap up. I think I've been brief, actually. We'll have more time for questions. From the Christian perspective, being human means that we are body and soul Together, Not one or the other. So if you simply pursue 
The desires of the flesh, you've lost touch that you have this non-physical reality. If you simply pursue the non-physical reality, you have lost touch with the fact that you have a body. So there is this integration. So one, body and soul together to be human. Two, we are in a fallen state, but with the greatest potential. We have fallen, but we can get up because of Jesus. To be human is to understand the human potential thanks to the incarnation of God as a human which set the bar at the highest possible level for all humans, body and soul together. As I said, to pursue one without the other is to miss the mark entirely. And the goal of human life then, the goal of human life is to ascend the mountain or the ladder. Let me go back here. The top of the ladder is Jesus. The path has already been established for Christians, as Athanasius stated in the fourth century God became man so that man might become God. Thank you. My question is about the Gospels and texts that didn't make it into the Bible and those that assert that Jesus wasn't celibate and that he was married and had a family. I wondered if you'd comment. Yeah. Yeah, there's, well, let's just, I mean, first, oh, the question is, what about these other Gospels? There were Gospels that didn't make it into the canon of the official 27 books, of, or, or the New Testament is 27 books, four of which are these accounts of Jesus. There were other accounts of Jesus, and, and they didn't make them in, into the canon, the, the, the official 27 books that's selected by the 4th century. And of those other accounts of Jesus, there are some... Diverse views of Jesus' life. And one of those views would have Jesus married. And there's a, oh, do you remember Bishop Shelby Spong? You may know, who's you know, still out there when he can, you know, talking. And that he wrote a book about that, really focusing on that, this idea that what if Jesus was married? Why do we also react against it? The, the one thing that I'll, I'll say, however, is that it's, it's clear that the earliest Gospels that we have clearly predate those Gospels that make those claims. So if we, we have not found any Gospel earlier than Mark, I know that there's the Gospel of, of Tom, Thomas is a Gospel that's often that's closest, closer to, to the canonical Gospels, but the, most of the Gospels that we have are clearly after. So these are Gospels that are trying to one could argue that these are Gospels that are trying to find textual evidence for what they currently believe. And so we see then, well, how do I prove it? I can find this in a text that suddenly emerges in the second century or later. But there are alternative views of Jesus. Uh, yeah, and those, again, are ultimately the, the losers, I mean, the ones that are pushed out, declared heretical, and then we move on and we ensure that Mary's Virginity is emphasized, and Jesus is as well. Now, uh, I said in this lecture that the ideal for historical Christianity is celibacy. And that's also something that m m uh, many of my Protestant students, they find, what? What do you mean? Isn't it marriage? Marriage is the ideal. This is the Christian model in historic Christianity. It is not. It is clearly celibacy. But when we get to Martin Luther, how does Luther break from the Catholic Church? How is a way of saying, no, we, we are not under that law, reject turning celibacy upside down. That celibacy now becomes an aberration. If you want to live as a Christian, you must be married. Martin Luther himself was a celibate monk and professor. That would make you very productive, that combination. And... Uh, <laughs> I am none of those three, actually. But he, what? Oh, that's what I need. Oh, my, my wife. Why have some? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> this is being taped. <laughs> uh, 
uh, okay, so Martin Luther. So he, with this break with the Catholic Church, Catholic theology, uh, the, the leadership of the Catholic Church, how do we make the break clear? One of the ways to reject this historic tradition of Christianity, of celibacy, utterly reject it. So the, the celibate monastic professor, monk, gets married. That's, and he marries a former nun. And again, this is breaking from the tradition. And that from that point on, for Protestantism, celibacy means Catholicism. Celibacy means an aberration from true Christianity. But that, in fact, is not historical. Uh, it is, but it, that, that legacy lives, lives on. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Hannah. Hello. Student, ERC student here. Welcome. I had the pleasure of taking Professor Herbst's class in MMW3 back uh, three years ago, and it was great. Um, and actually, I wanted to comment on one of the texts that we read in that class and how it relates to Christianity. It's uh, women in Christianity and how that in the first century, they were actually huge proponents for Christianity. They were actually a major reason why Christianity spread. And then the role of women has changed throughout the 2,000 years. And there was a, correct me if I'm wrong, there was a revision of the St. James um, that uh, apparently, the Christian women before St. James's Bible were uh, deacons, and that was actually taken out of the Bible. Um, I'm wondering, you talked a lot about the relationship between the soul and the body, and I'm wondering if there's a difference in that and how it relates to men and women in Christian tradition. Because a lot of the times, women are perceived as being more susceptible to their body. Um, so I was wondering if you can comment on that. Yes. Okay, that... Uh Hannah brought up the issue of women and the, and the role, of the prominent role that women played in early Christianity, spreading Christianity, something that is often lost when we simply see this as a matter of Paul's missionary success and we forget that there is, women are playing an active role in church leadership early on and in missionary activity or converting people through marriage and other means. So we have that. And then the, uh, uh, you wanted me to talk about well, I was just I was just mentioning this uh, the change of the role of women throughout time, but I'm um, through, because of the St. James Bible and how it uh, took out the mention of women as deacons. But then um, I was more interested in actually in how that pertained to the changing of the role of women in Christianity, how that pertained to the soul versus body idea. Uh, fundamentally. There's, there's no ontological difference. There's no, that, that, that women and men, in that sense, body and soul are the same. So that, that's the kind of theoretical, theological you know, level. Practical level, it, it helped enforce patriarchy to view women as the weaker sex so that they are less capable of controlling, less capable of having that alignment, and again, that justified having male power over them. So that, that's my, my general comment. And let, let me say one other thing about um, the ideals. If the ideal for women is the Virgin Mary, and most women within the Christian community would be married, again, there's a gap between that ideal and how I live my life as a, as a mother, as a wife. And when Protestantism emerges in the 16th century, rejecting this historical celibacy, this histor the roots of that in the Christian tradition, it impacts Mary, and it impacts the role of Mary in Protestant Christianity. And if you think about classic images of, say, sculpture, and, and I wish I had an image of the Pieta by, by Michelangelo, and you have Mary holding the dead Jesus. It's a powerful, powerful statement of a mother's love. And she's holding a, a, a man, an, an, an adult man, who looks like a 10-year-old boy. She's so enormous, and it emphasizes her, her power, her significance. Protestants reject celibacy as the ideal in the 16th century. And with it then, you have, this impacts our view of Mary in the 16th century at least, so that Mary cannot be this ideal anymore. And this has a historical legacy ahead. And it's one of the reasons in many Protestant communities, if you look at the, the life of, a, of the a church, kind of the liturgical life, liturgical year, as the church is moving through the year in Protestant versus Catholic communities, in Protestant communities, often Mary, Mary's only brought out twice a year. Right? She's brought out for Christmas because you need Jesus to be born. And you bring her out for Easter. And that's it. 
Okay? And it's just a shift. So, but the, but the, the simple question, again, is this view that it's patriarchy uses these religious ideas to exist. So, but Hannah, there's, there's more to the story, and, and that's all I'll say right now. Thank you, Professor. I just wanted to make a comment about uh, crucifixion and the harshness of the idea that was brought up as a question. And I'll just make a comment, and I'd uh, like to hear yours. There is a nature of God in the Old Testament that shows itself in different parts as being harsh. From the beginning, when the apple is eaten, when the knowledge is being distributed, that God comes with a wrath, that the snake is going to crawl, the woman is going to have pain, and the man is going to toil for the rest of the existence of humanity. When the, uh, Abraham is told that has to kill his son, when Shabbath comes and the man is outside the camp in Sinai gathering wood, God says it has to be killed. There is a death that has to be brought to the lamb, that has to be exerted every week or every so often for the guilt to be wiped out. That harshness continues and it shows itself in its pinnacle in Jesus. And then after that, there seems to be a softness that is introduced in the New Testament. Okay. After that, God is becoming forgiving. I'm less convinced of the last comment. You had me up to that point, but I'm, I'm not as convinced of that last comment. So, so I'd like to hear your comments because there seems to be the same pattern of the God we've created in the Old Testament that is also percolated in our punishment, in crime, in, this, in, in the let societal me make, that, Let me just make one quick comment. We have to wrap up. And, and it's this. To view the Hebrew Scriptures and not see multiple images of a divine being, sometimes harsh and sometimes offering this still small voice that calls us, is to, is to miss the existence of that. And to view the New Testament as only offering this teddy bear image of God is to miss the book of Revelation, is to miss images that come from Jesus' mouth that talk about dividing families, separating fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, bringing sores. And, and I see that, I, I don't see this division that's often, that, that, that's often made. I think it's a, that both offer kind of multiple perspectives on this divine being. There seems to be a sociological involvement that comes with that in our society overall in terms of societies growing and the, and the, and the forgiveness becoming a necessity part of, part well, of life. Let's continue this afterwards. Because not- Thank you very much. So I think it's easy to see why Matthew is among the most favored of all instructors at UC San Diego. Matthew, thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.